1: I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maid servant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This week as I was driving out to a meeting with a Pastor on the other side of Wake Forest. I was going with Nathaniel. It was a morning meeting, and he uh, came with me. And we were listening to a wonderful tape on Puritan evangelism. And one of the points that this tape was making is that one of the things that Puritans always sought to do is to use the law of God to bring the hearer to a lively and vigorous sense of their guilt before God. And we stopped the tape and talked at length about why this was so important. Why it is so important that when you're witnessing, when you're sharing the gospel, the law has its work in the heart so that the people come to the point of realizing their sinfulness, feeling it, as one uh, person said, smartingly. There's a stinging sense of conviction, a sense of ownership of that. And Nathaniel and I talked about that for a while. Uh, an illustration I've used before uh, has to do with the... Uh, The remedy for mad cow disease, and I came across this a while ago and thought it was very useful. Um, You've heard of mad cow disease, haven't you? It's a very terrible illness, and you don't want it. Suppose you had a friend that met with you at lunch and said, I want you to know that just out of love for you, I've sold everything that I own, my house, all of my possessions, my children, everything, to get you this. This vial of remedy. The only remedy there is in the world. There's only five like it in the world. And I bought one of for you. A remedy to mad cow disease. And I want you to take it. Now what would you think about your friend? About his sacrifice for you? And about his love for you? Would you be touched? Would you be moved? Would you cry tears of gratitude? Or would you think he's insane? He's crazy. Why are you concerned with me? Because the fact of the matter is, I don't have mad cow disease. So why would I need the remedy no matter how much love it shows, no matter how much cost that went into it? I, I guess in one way I'm touched, but I really think you're touched is the real issue. I think that's what's going on here. So, and I think this is the way non-Christians hear the gospel. I don't think they really understand why this great price was paid, why anyone would sacrifice their son, why the blood was shed. I don't think any of this means anything until the law does its work. And so we talked about this, Nathaniel and I, and, we, and I said this is the real hard part about evangelism. How would you like to be the messenger that keeps working and using the law until the person finally, as Luther said, hates their sin or hates you? And that's about what's going to happen, right? I mean, you can see it. And to do it in a humble way, and we got to talking about that, and I said, you know what occurs to me, that we're not done with the law either, are we? And one of my great concerns as we go through the Ten Commandments, familiarity breeds contempt. And after a while, you're going to say, just like the rich young ruler to Jesus, I've done all these things from my youth. You know, all that's dealt with. You shall not steal. Well, you know, it's been a while on stealing. I haven't, haven't stolen. You know, I was talking to my wife about temptation. You know, I said, a wallet full of money sitting somewhere, whatever, is zero temptation for me. Just none. I'm not tempted by it. I'm tempted by other things. But stealing is not a big issue for me in my life. Well, there's a couple things I want to say. If that may be you tonight, if you've come to the Ten Commandments and the Eighth, you you're think you're going to take tonight off? Well, first of all, I read all Ten Commandments, so you can't take the night off anyway. But second of all, I want to say a couple things. One is you should actually be searching your heart with the law. You should be laying under the law as on a, on a probing table, an operating table, and saying to the great physician, saying to the surgeon, Search me, O God, and know me. Test me and try me and see if there be any way in me that's dishonoring and displeasing. You should actually be hoping that God will uncover some sin tonight as we learn. And why? And not because uh, then you can feel guilty before God. Not at all. But that you can be healthy before Him. You can repent from sin. And you can see the effects of that sin lifted in your life. And you can see joy. Also, it gives you a great sense of gratitude of the price that was paid for saving you. Because you realize, mad cow disease aside, you had the great great disease of sin and wickedness and rebellion. And there is an incredible cost to that. And Jesus paid the penalty. And so that's what I want you to do tonight. I want you to kind of Picture yourself somewhat laying under the law and letting the law do its work. I want to say another thing to you. You may be surprised to find out that this commandment does apply to you after all. I'm amazed sometimes, especially by the business practices of people who go to evangelical churches. It bothers me when I hear what people who claim to be Christians, and I hope that they are, do to each other. I mean out in the business world. And I'm not going to assume that in a church of 400 or 350 people that there's nobody among us that doesn't need to hear the Eighth Commandment and learn not to defraud our neighbor or to charge too much for services rendered or to deceive them in some way in business or as an employee to, uh, to defraud your employer by not putting in a full day's work for a day's wage. So there are a variety of things that you may actually find yourself being stung with tonight and and a sense of conviction. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Uh, Because the grace of God is there to help and to encourage. Now, last week we began this study by just laying the, the doctrinal foundation. The doctrinal foundation of the commandment, you shall not steal, is a theology of possession. And let me just review briefly what we said last time. First of all, we learned, again, that God made all things. He created all things, and for him they were created, all of them. God also owns all things in a manner of speaking. They are his. He can have them any time he wants. Uh, They are his possessions really and ultimately. We also saw that all things not only came from God but are going back to God. Someday he's going to get it back. When you stop and think about it, I I think that other than some anomalies in the laboratory, what we would call alchemy and all that kind of thing, there's a certain number of gold molecules that God made at at creation. And people have just been kicking them around one nation or the other ever since. They're still here, and they'll be here when we go. Do you ever think about that? I mean, it's just the same stuff that generations have been fighting over, right? But all things are God's, and they're all going back to him again someday. Now, key step is understand that God entrusts some of his things to created beings, stewards, And they become their own possessions in a manner of speaking. Under God's uh, leadership, under his sovereign rule, they are their possessions. And so you have things that are yours. They belong to you. And other people have things that are theirs. They belong to them. This is the theology of possessions. Stewards own those things with relation to one another. So, in other words, not ultimately relation to God, but in relation to other human beings, those things are yours and not theirs. They're your, your possessions. Possession, therefore, is a God-ordained boundary line, and the stuff inside the boundary line is yours, God gave it to you, the things outside the boundary line are not yours. And the commandment, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, is you shall not jump across the boundary line and take something that God didn't put inside. That belongs to your neighbor. And so possession is a God-ordained boundary line. Also, possession is a blessing from God. The things inside your boundary line, inside your fence, they're given to you as a blessing. It's easy, I think, for some folks to look on possessions as a curse if you have an intense sense of guilt or judgment before God. And that you're going to have to give an account for everything. You'd actually like to get rid of it. John Wesley said that. I want to get rid of it as soon as I can. Because I don't want it to pollute me or corrupt me. And I understand that way of thinking. But the Bible doesn't totally uphold it. Because possessions are seen to be a blessing. And at least this much they are a blessing. Even if you give it away, it was yours at one point. And when you give it away, then there is treasure stored up in heaven by the sacrifice. And so in any way of thinking, possession is a blessing from God. It's a good thing to have those things. Now stewards who temporarily own things must someday give God an account for the things that they've done. And we talked about this from Matthew 25. You're going to give an account and answer for each one. Therefore, because of all of these things, other stewards or other servants, other created beings should not steal. They should not take from a person something that person has not given him. In Leviticus 6, 2 through 5, it says... If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving his neighbor about something entrusted to him or left in his care or stolen, or if he cheats him, or if he finds lost property and lies about it, or if he swears falsely, or if he commits any such sin that people may do, in case the other many statements didn't cover it, any such the sins that people may do, when he thus sins and becomes guilty, he must return what he has stolen or taken by extortion or was entrusted to him with the lost property he found, or whatever it was he swore falsely about, he must make restitution in full and add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the owner on the day he presents his guilt offering. And so we saw this uh, principle, you must not steal. There, uh, we're also going to talk momentarily about the issue of restitution, making restitution. We also saw... Uh, last time, that the theology of possession maintained itself even into the New Testament age, into the uh, the age of the Church, in which no one considered that any of his possessions was it all, was his own, but they shared everything they had. Well, that's not to be taken absolutely, as we learned, it's somewhat. The understanding is somewhat adjusted. It wasn't a pure communism we saw last time. But in the, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, remember, uh, Ananias sold a piece of property, and then with his wife's full knowledge, he brought the property, the money, and put some of it at the apostles' feet. But he said it was the full amount. He lied about it, and so did she later. So they agreed together to lie about the amount of money. Now, Peter, in speaking filled with the Spirit and really passing judgment on them at that particular moment, uh, extreme church discipline is what was going on there, an act of the Lord, he said, um, didn't the property belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, didn't the money, wasn't the money yours as well? You see... The property was yours, and when you converted it to money, the money was yours. You didn't need to give it all. That's not the issue. The problem is you lied about it. To me, this is very enlightening to understand the apostolic age and the possessions, the the idea, the theology of possession or ownership was still upheld. It's just they were very generous. And the spirit was so moving that they really didn't care what was theirs or somebody else's. If I had something and my brother needed it, it was his. It was that simple. So we see the beauty of all that. Now, that was last week. Now, this week, I want to look at the scriptures and try to understand uh, what stealing is. And so what I did was I, uh, I'm bringing before you a rogues gallery of thieves. We're going to look at biblical thieves and see uh, who they are. And you may be surprised to find out who's coming out here. Okay, first, there's Rachel. I actually find that Rachel is the first thief in the Bible, although I may be wrong. Maybe you can show me some others. And I'm certain that before the flood, people were stealing. But I'm just talking about this verb, and it says in, in Genesis 31:19, when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Now, what Rachel wanted with those, I have no idea. But you remember she took them. And Laban was extremely upset about it and hunted Jacob down and accused him of the theft. And he swore down capital crime on anyone that would take it. Uh, It it turned out to be his beloved wife, Rachel, but he didn't know that. And she managed to escape by lying concerning it. But Rachel, a thief. Now, what happened there? Then there's Achan uh, in Joshua chapter 7, uh, verse Eleven. You remember the story, as they were surrounding, or before they went around Jericho to invade and conquer the city, God gave clear uh, orders concerning the material possessions inside the city. What did he say? All of it is mine. God said that very, very plainly. It's all harem. uh, That's where we get the word harem. But it's all given over to God. It's consecrated to him. There's nothing in it you can have. And you're going to give it to me by burning it. Everything in the city is mine, all of it. Well, as Achan, a soldier in the Israelite army, was going through, he saw something he liked. And uh, he says in in Joshua 7, 21, When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, Chaldean robe, and 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with silver underneath. I mean, really small things. When you stop and think about it, it's not a lot. It was, it was a small fortune, if fortune it was. And you remember what happened as a result because Achan stole from God. They lost in their next battle against Ai. You remember some Israelites literally lost their lives as a result. And what did God say to Joshua when Joshua fell down and was weeping before God and saying, Oh God, why did you bring us in here just to destroy us? And God said, Get up off your face. And this is what he says. Israel has sinned. That's the problem. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. That's what he says. They've stolen. They have lied, and they have put them with their own possessions. They weren't theirs. They're mine. Achan stole from me. Well, let me tell you something. It's a bad idea to steal anyway. But to steal from God is a very bad idea. And that's exactly what Achan did. He took God's things. Now, in another respect, every plundering army, unless so commanded by God, put it that way, are a pack of thieves. And so it has been throughout history. I was reading recently um, about uh, this book called Band of Brothers, which was talking about uh, the 101st Airborne and one of the the platoons in there. And it just followed them through D-Day and through a number of battles. And there's about five or six pages discussing the issue of loot and plunder. And what happened once even the American soldiers got into Germany and started billeting in a German households? Basically, anything that wasn't nailed down wasn't there when they left. And this is what the German soldiers did when they were in France, and this is what every army has always done. They consider it to be their pay for hazardous duty. But this is what it says in Habakkuk 2.6. It says, speaking of armies, the uh, Chaldean army, it says, Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. You see that? He's talking about invading army. Piling up stolen goods, making themselves wealthy by extortion. Extortion is the threat of force. And uh, so squeezing a nation, saying, We're going to come and crush you militarily if you don't pay up. Uh, Habakkuk says it's it's theft. You're stealing from them. How about employers? Leviticus 19.13, do not defraud your neighbor or rob him and do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Very interesting principle there. An employer that has in his possession to pay in a timely fashion and for his own reasons withholds the pay, doesn't give it in a timely fashion, is stealing from the laborer. Take a minute and look at uh, the book of James. And in James chapter 5 and verse 1 and following, this is what it says. It says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, and this is James 5, 4. Look, the wages you fail to pay, the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Now, in verse 4, it's talking about wages that were not paid. It's a sin of omission, but it's grave that money is burning you in your own pocket or in your purse. It should have been paid and it hasn't been paid yet. Well, this is just an Old Testament principle. If you owe workers money, you need to pay it in a timely fashion. And to not do so is theft. Okay, powerful and corrupt leaders can be and have been thieves. They use their position uh, to gain material benefits by plundering the people. Uh, judges, for example, that, that accept bribes are really stealing, you see. If you have a sense that you will not get justice, you won't even get a hearing unless you bring your bribe with you, then the person, the judge, who's accepting the bribe is a thief. But listen to what it says uh, concerning the Pharisees, for example. In Matthew 21, 13, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers or thieves. And so the Pharisees, by their religious system, uh, by their money-changing system where you'd bring money from outlying districts and it was no good there. You had to have the temple shekel. And so when they'd exchange the the uh, money, they would never do it fairly, but through usury, uh, except, you know, taking uh, fees, exorbitant fees, they were charging uh, for the exchange of money. Those were the money changers. But also there were the uh, sacrifice inspectors who would inspect your sacrifice and guess what? It was never quite good enough. They would confiscate your sacrifice sacrifice, take it away. But here, over here, are some wonderful sacrifices that are pre-approved. You can buy them at an elevated rate, etc. Well, where do you think those came from? Out the back door, around in the back. It was a great scam. An awful lot of money was being poured in. Jesus meant it when he said, you've made my house a den of thieves. And so some religious leaders can use religion to plunder the poor and to take from them. You know, this is a big theme. A lot of false teachers use this. They play on people's fears and on their religious tendencies to plunder them of money. And it's stealing. Or uh, not just religious leaders, but just... Um, civic leaders as well. In Isaiah 10, it says, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? So these are unjust leaders who make laws to plunder the poor. Jesus spoke of the teachers of the law in Luke 20, in which he says, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. What does it mean they devour widows' houses? Well, they take them into themselves uh, through rules or regulations or if they can't pay a tax or something they uh, take the uh, ancestral property away from the widow. And how about this one? Israelites who fail to pay the tithe. Now, remember I said it's a bad thing to rob from God, but this is exactly what Malachi says was happening. It says in Malachi 3, 8 through 10, will a man rob God? Now, just ponder that question. Very, very bad idea. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me, says the Lord. But you ask, how do we rob you? The answer is in tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And so, uh, if God wants something, commands you to give it, and you withhold it, hold it back, uh, he says it's robbery. And then there are the common thieves and bandits. Uh, for example, in Luke 10, verse 30, you remember Jesus teaching about love, and uh, we should love our neighbors, as ourself, a man asks, Who is my neighbor? Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. Well, the Good Samaritan wouldn't have been possible, wouldn't have been possible for him to do his good work if there hadn't been thieves and bandits who did their bad work. And so in Luke 10:30 it says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And so there are these common thieves and bandits as well. You say, I haven't done that in a while. I'm really working on that, and uh, highway robbery, I've really got that one under control. haven't done it in a while. Same thing with brawling, okay? Are you doing better with that? Uh, If you're struggling with brawling, come and talk to me. So highway robbery and brawling are both bad ideas, and you should put them to death as soon as possible. Judas also was a thief, as you remember. Jesus put him in charge of the money bag. And it says in, in John 12, 6, After Jesus' feet were lavished on by that expensive perfume, remember the odor filled the whole house, uh, Judas objected. Why did he object? Well, in John 12, 6, it says, he did not say this because he was concerned for the poor, but rather because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he was helping himself to everything that was put in it. And one last category, it speaks of commands given to slaves that they should not steal from their masters. And I think this is significant. You know the story in Philemon of Onesimus who fled from uh, his master and then Paul met him, I believe in Rome, converted him, and then sent a letter back with Onesimus back to Philemon and says, here's your long-lost slave. I commend him back to you. If he owes anything to you, he says, I will pay what he owes. Just want to remind you, by the way, that you owe me your very life. But I will pay back if you want to hold him to it. Now, if you read between the lines, it seems that he, before he ran away, he stole from his master. But it got me to thinking just about the transition that we've made in the modern world, in which there isn't slavery, but thinking about the employer-employee relationship. And again, this is an issue in which employees can steal from their employers. One of the number one ways, I think, is just by not working hard, by not putting in a diligent day's work for a day's pay. A lot of times I would see this kind of thing in which other people that were working uh, would just drift when the boss wasn't around. And then when the boss would come, this is what you call eye service. Whenever the boss was there, productivity went way up. And whenever he wasn't there, then it would go down. I had to watch this in my own heart as well and realize that I was working for the Lord who saw all things. But even more, a sting for me was to consider that I was stealing from my employer if I didn't work hard the whole day. Anyway, those are a variety of ways that people have stolen. Now, what makes somebody steal? Well, I believe there's a direct connection between the Eighth Commandment and the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. I think that's where it starts. Achan saw something he wanted, and he took it. It all began inside the heart. You may still be in James, but look, uh, if you would, there at James chapter um, 2, I believe it is. No, I'm sorry, it's chapter 4. Yes, James chapter 4 and verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something and don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Now, what's going on there is that the person is not satisfied with what's inside their boundary lines. And so they look across the boundary lines and see something that doesn't belong to them, and they want it. And that's where uh, the uh, desire to steal comes from. Now, as we bring this uh, study to a close, I think it's interesting to me that Jesus himself sees the spiritual side to stealing. And he looks at the higher level to the issue of uh, the soul's of men and women. Look with me, if you would, at John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, in verse 1, it says this. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. Do you see that? Well, again, this is one of those times in which the chapter divisions are not very helpful for us. Okay? Because I believe this is an immediate continuation from the end of chapter 9. And what happened at the end of chapter 9? Well, in chapter 9, marvelous chapter, the healing of the man born blind. Do you remember that? Well, the man who was born blind uh, testified in a very simple and beautiful way. Hey, one thing I know. I don't know any of the deep theology you're getting into, but one thing I know. I was blind, and now I can see. In my Sunday school class, we learned three steps, the three basic things: mud, wash, see. He says it over and over. What, what, what did they do? What did he do to you? He put mud on my eyes. I washed off, and then I can see. Well, tell me more. What happened? Mud, wash, see. Mud, wash, see. I mean, it doesn't take long, all right? And that's about what this guy says. He was just a simple guy. And he's just saying, mud, wash, see. You want me to say it again? I'll say it again. Mud, wash, see. I'd say it as many times as you want. One thing I know, I was blind and now I can see. Well, how did he open your eyes? Mud, wash, see. Okay, over and over he's saying these things. Finally, they ask, well, what do you think about the man who did it? I think he's a prophet. I don't, but I, you know, and they said, we don't know where this man comes from. Now, that is remarkable. You don't know where he came from, and yet he opened my eyes. I have an idea who he is. Well, Jesus went and confirmed him. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He said, tell me who he is that I may believe in him. Well, that's after they've thrown him out of the synagogue. Because they already said that anyone who confessed that Jesus was the Christ would be thrown out of the synagogue. And so at the end of chapter 9, you know, the man said, "Uh, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Beautiful, beautiful moment. that man's up in heaven, seeing with a perfect vision right now, face to face, incredible. Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And then Jesus says this, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. Do you see the continuity there? He's going right across the, the chapter division. And, and what he's saying is that the Pharisees, the false teachers, are soul thieves, is what they are. They steal people's souls. But the real thief are not these, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. No, look what he says here. In chapter in, in ten seven, he says, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers. Those are false teachers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Who's the real thief? Who's the real soul, soul thief except the devil? He's a murderer, a soul assassin, and he's come to steal. And the beauty is that Jesus has come to steal back. Look at Matthew 12 uh, and 29. Matthew twelve twenty nine. <coughs> this is where Jesus is talking about the whole issue of Jesus and Beelzebub. Remember that he drove out a demon. From a man who is blind, demon possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed them so he could both talk and see, and they were astonished. But the Pharisees said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he drives out demons. Remember that? Jesus talks, every kingdom divided against itself would be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. And then he says, if I drive out demons, I'm in Matthew twelve twenty-seven. If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What does he mean the kingdom of God has come upon you? The power of God is working through Jesus to drive out these demons. It's a display of power. It's his way of saying, my kingdom's going to advance and I'm taking some things back from the soul thief. I'm taking them back from the devil. Powerfully. And look at the next verse, 1229. He says, Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Now, who's the thief in this verse? Jesus is. It's very interesting, isn't it? He says, Okay, I'm trying to take some stuff away from the devil. Remember how the devil said to Jesus, This world is mine and I can give it to anyone I want to? And Jesus said, yeah, well, I'm here to take it from you. Now, ultimately, the world is the Lord's. But there is a sense of jurisdiction. There's a sense in which the world was committed to us. And at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we gave it to the devil. And so there's a sense of propriety there. But Jesus ultimately has ownership of it. God has ownership. And Jesus entered the world as a son of man to destroy the devil's works. And he's come to steal back to some degree. Just trying to understand Matthew 12:29, From the strong man, those things that he thought belonged to him. And so he's been stealing and stealing and stealing souls from the devil. And nothing's going to stop it. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Isn't that wonderful? And so Jesus is taking us back. Beautiful thing. And then finally, uh, if you are uncomfortable with that, well, you have to deal with it quite directly in Revelation 3.3. 3. So look at that. Revelation 3.3. three. 3. say, I don't like the idea of Jesus as a thief. That just doesn't sit well with me. It bothers me. And the pastor says strange things like that. But it's, you know, it's evening. And and as the day goes on, you get a little tired and you say strange things. And so that's how it is. So, um, but in Revelation 3, and this is what he says. Revelation 3, 3. Remember, this is to the church at Sardis. Uh, The church at Sardis is the dead church. They're the dead church. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead says, wake up, strengthen what still remains. And 3.3 3 says, remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, in my Bible, this is in the red letter edition here. You see the red? This is Jesus speaking. And he says, I'm going to come like a thief. It says openly in 1 Thessalonians five two, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then it says in Revelation 16:15, look there for a moment. This is what he says, Revelation 16:15, behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. So Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means he's not announcing. He's already announced it. He told it in the scriptures 2,000 years ago. I'm coming soon. That's what he said. And then he says plainly in two places in Revelation, I'm coming like a thief in the night. What does that mean? Be ready. Be ready for him. He's coming in a time that you do not expect him. All right, what application can we take from this study on stealing? Well, basically the simple thing is do not steal. Do not steal. Well, what kinds of things do we have in mind? Well, I was in a hotel room once and I I saw a sign saying due to the popularity of our towels and our blankets and our linens, we are offering them on sale. Uh, the following is the price structure. If you would like, all you need to do is just take them and we'll charge your credit card uh, for the various things at the following rate. I thought it was a little expensive, so I decided I wasn't going to take any Holiday Inn towels or whatever that, that night. But, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing how people can just lift things and take them. And you say, I, I would never do that. I would never take things from a hotel room. But uh, uh, what about time from the employer? Are you putting in a full day's work for a day's wage? Do you work diligently all day long? Because when you coast, and when you're not, you, don't, you don't give your best, you're stealing from your employer. Uh, what about uh, the employer himself, the, the one who sets the wage? Are you paying a fair wage? Are you taking advantage? It may be tempting to use, perhaps, uh, illegal aliens or others uh, to do work and to pay uh, under the table or do any of those kinds of things. It's it's sin. It's stealing from the government, and it's wrong. Oh, yes, the government. April. Yes, taxes. You know how many questions of conscience come up at tax time? Again and again, questions of conscience. And you have to face it. You say, okay, here's my ethic when it comes to taxes. I want to give the government every penny they deserve and not a penny more. Well, you know what the price of and not a penny more is? Time. Research. You've got to find out the laws. If you just do 1040EZ, you're going to pay the government every penny they deserve and an awful lot more. But that wouldn't be wise. I wouldn't advise it. And so what you have to do instead is you have to you have to invest the time and do it right. Don't rob from the government by taking from them taxes that belong to them. Uh, lawyers can overbill hours. I was talking to a lawyer talking about this, and they said it's 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 rampant in the industry of overbilling hours. Uh, f- that were really not spent on the case because there's really no way to find out how many hours were spent thinking about the case. Uh, same thing with physicians or with anybody who gives a service. Make sure that the, that the fee charge is appropriate, uh, is appropriate. All of these things. Budget items. This is one thing I urge. A- a- any one of you may at some point be filling out or making out a budget. For our church, okay? One of the mentalities is if we don't keep the budget at the, at, the, at the level from last year, we'll lose it. We'll never get it back. I hate that. If you don't need it for the next year, don't submit it to the church. Just strike it out. And if you'll need it next year, then put it back in. And this in this way, we were able to trim a lot of stuff off our budget last year by saying, do you really need that level? Don't be afraid and think you'll never get it back again. We're not like that. So if you'll need it next year, make a case for it. And in that way, we're able to trim a lot of things off the budget. Ultimately, more than anything, I want you to be ready for the Lord, okay? Maybe this talk tonight has not convicted you personally of any stealing, okay? There's nine other commandments and plenty others besides. But remember this. The Lord is coming like a thief in a night. He said, be ready and watch and be sure you have your garments with you. You know what that is? It's the robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to all who trust in him.